Most of the male runners figured if any woman wants to run 26 miles in a driving rain, let her run. But veteran Boston trainer Jock Semple thought the whole thing was silly. No, there's enough competition for women. What the heck? Why do they want to tackle the, the, the toughest thing in the world? It's just the uh, women and their stubbornness just want to do something that they're not supposed to do. That's all there is to it. You know that. You're married. That was 50 years ago. In the time since, women have made remarkable progress towards equality in sport. Today, 40% of all athletes are women, and yet women still receive less than 4% of media coverage. The Iron Woman podcast wants to help change that. We interview female professional athletes and other remarkable women making breakthroughs in endurance, sport, and research. So that when I grow up, I will have heroes. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I'm Haley Chura. And I'm Rosalie. And you're listening to the Iron Women Podcast. Okay, Alyssa, imagine you're stranded on a deserted island and you have to pick one thing to drink for the rest of your life. What would you choose? Haley, I think I'd have to go with Noon Sport Watermelon Flavor. Nice choice. Personally, I'd opt for the Noon Endurance Lemon Lime Flavor because in my deserted island fantasy, I'm still getting in regular 90-minute workouts. That sounds totally reasonable. The good news is that all Noon Hydration products are made with clean, quality ingredients that are good for your body and the planet. So if you ever find yourself on a deserted island, or maybe just in the middle of a really long training day, you'll be thankful that Iron Women podcast listeners get 30% off all Noon Hydration purchases by using the code IRONWOMEN at NoonLife.com. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for... Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. Hi, Haley. How's it going this week? Alyssa, welcome back to the mainland. Um, I'm really excited to hear from you and because you were just in Kona at the Ironman World Championship. So what was it like on the ground? It was busy as always. Like, I, I don't know how many years I'll go thinking I'm going to ever have like a relaxing Hawaiian time and vacation out there because it's never that way if you are involved even peripherally with the racing that's going on and that sort of thing but it's always super fun and it's just like nostalgic to be back there and seeing the sights and seeing like all the nerves and the um everything else that's happening on Ali'i so um personally I was on like this running mission because I'm trying to get as many miles as I can so I got to catch up with a lot of people who ran miles with me on Ali'i. So shout out to Steph Corker and the Noon crew for getting some of those miles in with me. Um, very grateful for that company during all of that. But Haley, this um, this race was super fun to watch. So I was always, you know, as always, very excited to watch the women's race. And it seemed from my perspective to be very exciting. I didn't get to like watch the coverage at the same time, really. Um, so hopefully that got conveyed and you can let me know if that's true. But it was really 
just interesting, right? To see Daniela not at the front of the race. I like to go and spectate out in Kauai High so I can kind of get that first glimpse of like what's happening in during the race um, while they're about halfway or so on the bike. And then, um, you know, to to see Lucy was in front at that point and she had, you know, quite a chase pack on her still at that point. And just to, you get to see kind of like the ebb and flow of people throughout the day, you know, like you can see people feeling good as they go up to hubby and then they come back and you can just see in their faces sometimes that like the day is not really unfolding how they wanted to. And it's like pure sport at its finest. I think getting to spectate a race like Kona up close and personal because it's so emotional and it's so personal for the everyone racing, but really when you're watching those pros, you know, racing for that world championship, like you, you can get emotional along with them, you know, like you feel it sometimes watching their faces. And so we got to see a lot of that unfold. Um, I actually was standing on the queen K and, uh, right at mile just before mile 23. So I was watching Lucy closing back in on, um, Sarah Crowley and she was, you know, I didn't know if she had made the pass or not, but I could see it kind of unfolding there. The helicopter was right above us. It was like a very dramatic scene I knew was unfolding. Um, so that was, that was really cool to see. And wait, can I, I think I have a question about that because I was oh, yeah. watching the coverage and it looked like there were no spectators allowed on the queen K. So that's like, I mean, it's a big chunk of the race and it looked like there was no one out there I guess, but you, and then I know in the report, I watched the, you know, the helicopter coverage. It looked like Lucy's husband was out there and I, and she said he was able to talk to her. So, I mean, were there spectators? Was it allowed? Was it not allowed? Were you guys all going rogue? Am I, am I putting you on the spot? No, no, no. So if you have ever tried to spectate Kona, um, it's always a big question mark. Like we never know how far, um, on the queen K will be allowed every time I've been doing it. Like it's been a different spot and it's been a different rule. And last year was really nice. You basically could go the entire run course. Um, they didn't let you actually into the energy lab maybe, but you could go like basically all of the other miles except for that. Um, this year and other years previous, like you basically ride up on this like sandwich board sign on the side that says like no bikes allowed past this point. And so I guess if you wanted to run or you were on foot or something like that, you could get past that point. But there is like a workaround. Like you could if you were in a car, go up top and come down to like the back road to the airport area and, or to the energy lab, I guess. And there were no signs at that point. So like you could have driven around and then been on that side. And there was like nothing indicating from that point of view forward that you couldn't be there, you know? So it's all, it's definitely fairly unclear. Um, I also heard that like there was that sign that was where I stopped and like a huge group of people had all stopped because we thought we had to stop there. But then I guess there was like another sign, like a mile up the road that also said that. So I'm not sure really if anyone knows what the rules are, but there was, you know, moral of that story. There was a large chunk of the run race that, um, being on the ground, you couldn't see unfold. So anything back in the energy lab, I didn't get to see. Um, but again, I, I don't think it's like wrong if someone was there because I'm sure they like, had gone a back way or something. And to my knowledge, like that was totally fine. I know some people who had done it that way. So I think it's just, it's not like clear. Yeah. It's interesting. There are a lot of rules in, in Ironman that I feel like could, 
could use a little clarification, but um, it was a really exciting race to watch even at home. I thought the coverage was was really excellent. I watched the the first two, like I sat and actually watched like the first two hours of the race. Um, were covered by NBC Sports, and they had like Keely Jones, um, 2006 Ironman champion, and then Greg Bennett, who is a, I believe, two-time Olympian, um, commentating along with the NBC commentator, and 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 that was pretty exciting to see it kind of on mainstream television. And then, of course, the um, the kind of Ironman crew took over, and that was made of Dee Griesbauer. Um, Greg Welch, Michael Lovato, I think Matt Lieto was on the ground. So I thought they did a good job. I thought the women's race was well covered, at least from the parts I saw. I admit I didn't watch the entire thing. I had to go do some of my own exercising in there somewhere. But um, but it was. It was an amazing race. Annie Haug, German, wins. Big upset. Um, Lucy Charles Barclay, who you mentioned, fought back from second. She led a lot of the day was passed by Sarah Crowley and then repassed Sarah, which is very unusual in, in Kona racing. And then Sarah Crowley from Australia got third. And, and the big news of the day was Daniela Reef, four-time defending champion, finishing in 13th place. Very unprecedented. I don't think I've ever seen Daniela actually even look like she was having a tough time, you know, even struggling. And so it was very foreign to watch her, her kind of struggle and have a bad day. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the feeling like from people there was like, our hearts just, it did it, you know, it's like kind of breaking. Cause you know, most of us mortals, right. Have had those kinds of bad days, but we get to like suffer privately. There's not a camera in our face for that entire day to watch how you're going to react, how you're like, what exactly is going on? Will you bounce back? Something like that. And she handled it. I have to say, um, everything I saw with a lot of grace and, you know, was thanking people for the cheers and all of that. Like she, she was definitely very, I think still grateful to just be out there. And maybe it gave her a day where she could kind of, you know, enjoy a little bit more and really recognize how much of that community is out there for her. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I know it probably still is a bit unrequited for her though. But one thing that was new Haley this year in the age group race is that it was the first year for wave starts. So It'll be interesting to see how this unfolds because they did um, the pro men and the pro women and then I think physically challenged athletes and then a couple age groups of waves of men. And then there was like a good gap, like uh, 25 minutes at least um, before the first uh, wave of age group women happened. And so the women, age group women were in a corral for like about an hour, it seems, you know, um, in the morning ahead of time and definitely changes, I think, the dynamic for age group women racing. Um, just, you know, I can say that, you know, when you you race a sport like triathlon where you do get to toe the line with pros, and, and I think back to racing age group in Kona, like, it was interesting to be able to see, like, where I am as compared to where they were, you know, when I was doing it, I guess... Uh, Haley, like the pros probably went off like 10 minutes before us, right? Five minutes before us. I, don't I think know. it was, was like that? 10, 10 minutes. I want to yeah. say, I think 10 minutes. And we did a mass start, all men, right. all women, everyone. It was terrifying and beautiful at the same time. And so it was definitely, definitely different. I had an athlete who was coming in off the bike um, as I was up watching my other athlete on, you know, mile 10 of the run, because he had, uh, the, one of the men's waves, obviously. Right. So, 
you know, and they both, I would, I would say in a normal Ironman where it would have been like a mass start or a rolling start, they would have been like pretty close to each other. So it was interesting to see that, you know, kind of delay for the women's race and how that plays out. And I think mentally, you know, for the people out there, just keep that in mind. Like that certainly is something to consider that you're going to be coming in off a long, hard bike and then be seeing people almost done with their race that normally you're probably racing with. Right. And so being able to like stay positive and remember that like you're, you still could be having the best day despite that, I think is, is probably a little tricky for some people. I imagine that would have been a little bit of like a mind thing for me. Alyssa, in all honesty, that would motivate me to want to race pro. <laughs> I mean, earlier start, earlier finish, the wins only get worse there. Um, if, you know, I know it's hard and there aren't many incentives sometimes, like, or we're lacking the incentives to, for age group women, for those top age group women to make the leap to pro racing, but that seems like that could be one. No, I totally agree. Um, you know, basically in any rate, not even in Kona, right? Like anywhere you're going to get um, prior priorities start time. And it does make a big difference. I have to say that's definitely something I like. Well, Lisa, um, in addition to Kona, which was an amazing race, congratulations to everyone who competed. Congratulations to you, Alyssa, as a coach and being on the ground there. Cause it sounds like it was not easy. Um, there was some other news from the sports world. It was a busy, busy sports weekend. I also got to, I mean, I didn't actually watch it cause it happened in the middle of the night, but Iliad Kipchoge of Kenya, um, he broke two hours in the marathon, 159.40 in a kind of controlled environment with pacers. So not an official world record, but still an impressive run. And then the next day I did actually catch this one, um, the end of it, at least at the Chicago marathon, Kenyan Bridget coast guys, two fourteen Oh four world record at the Chicago marathon. It was, it was beautiful. I mean, I don't, I don't have many words for it. I think it was just, I mean, I didn't know that was possible to, to run that fast, but I guess no one did except for her Bridget. So congratulations to them. I mean, there was even more like Coco Goff, the 15 year old American won her first women's tennis association singles title in Austria. And then Simone Biles won her 25th world championship medal in gymnastics. I mean, Alyssa, that is a crazy weekend. I mean, have we ever seen that big of a weekend in sports? Like not, not in my, I can't think of one. I don't think so. I think it's like October. It's just these, the time of year, right? Like the, it's getting a little bit like all the championships are happening. The weather's becoming great for like conditions. Like, you know, the, the season of work is settling in. So I, maybe, maybe it's October. Maybe everyone should be trying to race something in October. Cause it's a good time of year. Yeah, it must be. And and we are happy because October also uh, kicks off two new sponsors for us here at the Iron Women podcast. We are welcoming Form and VeloFix to the Iron Women podcast family. Alyssa, you, you had some experience with the Form goggles, I think, this weekend, right? Yeah, I was able to get my hands on them in Kona and I had my first swim with them and it's pretty cool. I have to say like being able to just kind of eye your pace, your distance, your time, like all that. I haven't played with um, all of the metrics yet and like perfected the setup, but I I enjoy something like that. You know, I, I'm also a big fan, like old school swimming. I like the clock. So I expected to like kind of be resistant to this, but I put them on and, and, you know, my first impression was a positive one. So I'm, I'm going to keep everyone posted as I, uh, learn some more 
kind of tips with them, I guess. Um, but I'm, I'm enjoying that like change to my swimming right now. I think it'll be fun. Well, we are very excited for form goggles as well as VeloFix to join our sponsor family, um, which also includes Noon Hydration, Zelios, and Wahoo. And you can find any discount codes for those products in our show notes. But thank you again to those, uh, those great sponsors. And of course, if you are missing the island life, um, you can go back and check out the Iron Women Facebook page at any time to watch some of the many, many interviews that Sarah Taylor and Ashley had for everyone with the pro women on the big island. Um, so many good things and fun things. And it's kind of cool once you know now how like the race ends up to go back and kind of listen to them pre-race and and make that kind of dichotomy like, you know, play out for your, yourself Ooh. in your head. I never thought of that, Alyssa, but that is true. If you go back and watch and you're like, wow, that person seemed really confident and then they did well, or that person seemed really nervous and then they had some issues. Like that's an interesting, interesting, uh, perspective there. Yeah. And so if you are doing that and you are loving that content, just remember that, um, we are able to do things like that because of the support of our patrons and you can go to patreon.com forward slash live feisty to join our community of patrons and with your monthly contribution it helps us to continue to put out content like that and like the iron women podcast and Alyssa, i know you just got home but did you have a chance to open the iron women podcast mailbag and see if we have any questions this week i did Haley, and we have a question this week from nicole she is doing her first full Ironman in Arizona this November, and she hears the water is pretty cold. And Nicole, you're right. It's usually pretty cold. So, but there is no warm-up swim prior to the swim start there. So she's not too worried about the cold water, but it's not having that practice swim time to be able to jump in and get used to that cold water. Um, that worries her because she feels it's necessary to get the water in her wetsuit um, so she can move freely in it and kind of like adjust it for shoulder fatigue. Um, do we have any suggestions on how to get this done without the practice swim? She has heard of bringing a gallon of warm water and dumping it down your wetsuit while waiting in line um, as a possibility. So Haley, what do you think? So I have been in this position before where you're getting ready for a cold water swim. You can't get in. And the way a wetsuit works is that it's nice if you can get some water in between your skin and the wetsuit and warm it up a little before you start the race, just because that's what keeps you warm. You know, you warm that layer of water right next to your body and that keeps you warm as you swim. So her gallon of water idea isn't a terrible one. I do think carrying a gallon of warm water I mean, it's just hard logistically. Like, where do you get it? How do you carry it around? You already have so much stuff to carry on race morning. So Nicole, if you feel comfortable doing that, do that. A slightly easier option, something I've done in the past, is actually just have a water bottle, like not a whole gallon, but just a water bottle of water and pouring that in a little bit just to get it started. I mean, it doesn't have to be perfect, but that will get a little bit of water in your in your wetsuit. Um, and then just moving around a little bit, like to get yourself warm. So maybe even doing some like light squats or lunges while you're in the, you know, in that starting line, some arm swings. I mean, obviously watch out for your fellow competitors around you, but, and not overdoing it. We're saying like, like 10, I mean, not, not enough to create fatigue, but just to kind of keep you warm. And then the biggest thing I would just remind you is that 
Everyone that you're racing is in the same boat. No one is allowed in a practice swim. So yes, a practice swim probably would make you feel better in the water. It'd be nice to adjust your wetsuit in the water. It'd be nice to get that water in there. But no one has that luxury. So we kind of face race conditions like these sometimes where they aren't perfect. They're not necessarily conducive to the best and fastest swim time ever that you could produce. But one of the challenges of Ironman is doing your best with the circumstances you're given. And in this case, I mean, that's all I think you can do. And so don't beat yourself up if you aren't able to bring water down. Don't beat yourself up if you take a couple minutes to get warm during the first part of the swim. Do your best to handle those conditions and keep moving forward. Haley, I think that's um, great tips from Nicole. And Nicole, you can let us know how it goes. And... Haley, even with all of that sports news that we had happened this past weekend, our interview this week is a little more focused on world news. What do we have coming up? Alyssa, I feel like Syria has been a fixture in the news for the past eight years. The country has been in the midst of a civil war, and just in the past few days, it appears that violence has escalated as reports say Turkish troops have moved into northern Syria to attack the Kurds. This is a really complicated situation for us as Americans because we are allies of both Turkey and the Kurdish ethnic group. In fact, until very recently, U.S. troops were working with the Kurds to, in northern Syria to fight the Islamic State militants, also commonly referred to as ISIS or ISIL. Okay, but Haley, this is an endurance sports podcast, so why should we all care about what is happening in northern Syria? Well, listen, triathlon is a global sport. I mean, we just raced the 70.3 World Championships in Nice, France, and we ran on the Promenade d'Anglaise, the exact stretch of road where 86 people died and close to 500 more were injured in an ISIS-affiliated terrorist attack in 2016. So anyone who navigated the security at that race can't say that international issues don't affect them. That's true. And as athletes that make our living by racing and training around the globe... I do think it's important to be just as mindful of global conflicts as we are about the Instagram-worthy destinations that we're racing in. I'll offer a bit of background for those who might not know why Turkish troops are targeting the Kurds in northern Syria. We're recording this on Tuesday, and Monday night, the Wall Street Journal published an opinion piece by Turkish President Erdogan saying Turkey's motive is to move Syrian refugees back into Syria. In the past eight years, 3.6 million Syrians have fled into Turkey, and Turkey says it's reached its limit. It is also widely reported that Turkey considers the Kurds in northern Syria to be linked to a terrorist organization within Turkey, which is also motivating the Turkish attack. Northern Syria was once an ISIS stronghold, which is one reason the United States first got involved in the region. With the U.S. help, the Kurds fought ISIS militants, and until very recently, dreamt of having autonomy in the region. With the absence of U.S. military support, the Kurds have apparently made concessions to that goal of self-government and turned to the Syrian government and Russia for help to fight the Turks. Meanwhile, as the U.S. troops have pulled out of the region, we have imposed economic sanctions on Turkey to hopefully deter their offensive attacks. So in general, Haley, this is a really complicated situation. Exactly, Alyssa. And hopefully our listeners are still following along because this does tie into this week's interview. So this week we are talking to Syrian refugee and Olympic swimmer Yusra Mardini. 
some of our listeners might recognize Yusra's story as the girl who, along with her sister, treaded water for hours after the motor went out in the inflatable raft they were using to smuggle themselves from Turkey to Greece as they fled the Syrian civil war. Yusra and her sister both survived that journey, and just one year later, the impossible happened. Yusra used her swimming in a different but no less life-altering way as she swam in the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Olympics as a member of the first-ever refugee Olympic team. I know that story sounds incredible, but Yusra's journey has actually been so much more than just the boat story and the Olympics. She's recently released a book called Butterfly that details her refugee experience, and we're so excited she agreed to come on the podcast to talk about life in Syria before and during the war, why she left, what it was like to be a representative for displaced people worldwide at the Olympic Games, and what she's training for next. We'll have our interview with Yusra right after the break. This is Haley, and I've spent most of my swimming career squinting at pace clocks or trying to catch a glimpse of my watch during intervals. If you're like me and love knowing your swim splits but hate finding a clock, there's a better way. Form Swim Goggles are the first premium goggles with a smart display that shows your metrics while you swim. You heard that right. Form Goggles have a see-through display in one of the eye cups so you can see your splits, pace, distance, or any other metric right in front of you. I've done a few workouts with the Form Swim Goggles and the coolest thing is once you press start, the goggles actually know when you're swimming and when you're resting. There's no need to press another button until you finish your workout. Want to learn more? Head to formswim.com. This is Alyssa, and as a triathlete, I am all about efficiency. That's why I'm excited that VeloFix is now a part of the Live Feisty community. VeloFix is North America's largest mobile bike shop fleet, and they know that your most valuable asset is time. VeloFix will meet you wherever you are at in your day so you don't miss a beat. Or if you have some time, you can hang out in the mobile bike shop and enjoy a complimentary cup of coffee to learn about the service being done. Interested? Here's how it works. Head to VeloFix.com or call 1-855-VELOFIX, set your appointment, and the local VeloFix technician will come directly to you. Book your service today using promo code FEISTY so they know you're an Iron Women listener. The first 100 listeners to book today using promo code FEISTY will receive a major tune for the price of a minor tune. Again, that's VeloFix.com and promo code FEISTY to enhance your bike service experience today. Hi, Yusra. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Thank you. I'm really happy to talk to you guys. Congratulations on your recent swims at the FINA World Championships in South Korea. This past July, you swam the 100-meter butterfly and 100-meter freestyle events, coming extremely close to your own best times. I believe this was your third World Championships experience. So what did you think about the meet in South Korea? It was really incredible. It's always really nice to, you know, uh, see the top level athletes and see where it's swimming at. And uh, I mean, obviously, I, I I wasn't competing on a medal level, obviously, but, um, you know, the goal was to be there to uh, to show people that, you know, after everything that happened, that I'm still swimming and I still have passion and goals. So, um, yeah, it was really a great experience. 
And you've posted that the 2020 Olympic season officially started about a month ago. So other than graciously taking some time to talk to us, can you tell us a little bit about how your first month on the road to the Tokyo Olympics has been? Lots of cramps, <laughs> first of all. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard because, I mean, after you get uh, used to the vacation and to the warm sun, you're back uh, home. You, uh, we started, like, now the season. Uh, we had a plan. What are we going to do the whole season? It's going to be more competitions this season, uh, more training camps. And, um, yeah, the focus this year is only on my sport. And um, so, as example, I have... Uh, two trainings a day, uh, sometimes one swimming, one gym, and sometimes two times swimming. And um, now everything's getting harder than the last season because, as example, we have in the gym the weights. Uh, we have a goal. When you reach the goal, the weights get, get higher and higher and higher. You don't stop on a weight. You just go higher. And uh, with swimming, as we are focusing on everything, uh, we have the um, camera techniques. Uh, we have lots of we have like small battles to see how uh, how good your pulling on the water is. Um, I mean, we have a lot of technologies. We have uh, everything we need. Uh, we are just training. We're focusing on training right now, and uh, it is kind of the preparation of the season right now. And uh, so everything is ten times harder. But uh, then till January, it's uh, in January, there's a training camp. And after that, maybe it can get a little bit easier, like with, with the flow. <laughs> yeah, but I think this year is going to be hard and it should be. That's it's right. Like you never necessarily get, never gets easier, but you get stronger, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you yeah, sort of, yeah. you're 21 years old now and you've been swimming pretty much your entire life. You grew up outside Damascus, Syria, and your dad was a swim coach while you and your older sister, Sarah, were both Syrian national team swimmers in your early teens. What was it like to grow up in such a swimming-focused family? Um, it was hard because um, my father always expected us to be the best, obviously, from his swimmers and all of that. And uh, uh, for me, it wasn't that hard because, like, I was okay with swimming. In the beginning, I didn't love it. I ran away from the pool when I was like eight years old, seven. I told him I want to go to the bathroom, and then I stayed there. I I was hiding under my mom's seat. I was just pretending to be sick all the time. And uh, yeah, at one point, I just get, I just gave up because I knew he won't, you know, he's going to tell me go to the water anyway. So I just gave up, and uh, I realized that actually I like it. And I'm good at it. And I, I, I trusted my father as a coach. So I continued. And um, yeah, when, uh, when I was like 15, I stopped swimming for a whole year because my father left uh, the country to Jordan. And it was really, really hard. And so I left swimming. And I realized that actually I loved it way more than I ever thought or I... I had a goal, I had a like passion, I had something in my life that made me, you know, special than, um, that made me, yeah, maybe different than anyone else. So I was like, and I threw that away. I was like, no, you know what, I want to have a goal. And then I decided to come back. 
on my own. My father wasn't there. And um, yeah, then I realized that actually I wanted it. It's not because of my family. But yes, there was a, like um, a little bit of pressure because like my cousins were swimmers. All my uncles were swimmers. And uh, yeah, and they wanted us to be good. They wanted us to go like international because my grandpa didn't allow them to go out of the country for competitions and so on. So they they um, they supported us and they wanted us to be really, really special. So, yeah. And the Syrian civil war began in March 2011, just after your 13th birthday. But you've written about how in the early days of the war, there was no mention of it on the TV news programs. And you only really learned about what was happening from classmates on the school bus. At what point did you realize that the fighting might actually affect you? Um, yeah, so in the beginning, like on the bus, like it was, it was just kind of like, oh, I want to know, it's gossip, I want to know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so when we talked about it, we, we never thought that, um, that, you know, there will be war and then everyone will start, you know, fighting and all of that. Um, yeah, but, but I can't remember exactly when, like it, it break out like oh, as a war, but uh, we started hearing about other cities in Syria being like closed. There's like a army, there are people shooting and uh, we didn't know exactly what was happening. Uh, people started to be afraid, stay home. And um, then we saw like slowly, slowly the enemy, there was like a checkpoint. There was uh, lots of... Uh, Lots of people with like a weapon or the army with weapons, you know, to protect the people or, or, um, we had like bomb attacks and all of that. The, the pool was, uh, the glass is always like broken or something happened. So there we realized that, you know, this is not something that's gonna stop in a year or two. And, um, yeah, but after, actually after the war started with two or three years, everyone stopped to care, like, because in the beginning, everyone's uh, like closed their shops. Uh, oh, I'm not going to swim. I'm not going to school. I'm afraid, blah, blah, blah. But then we realized that something's going to go on for longer. So we decided, you know, to, to get out again. The people, especially the teenagers, they said, you know what, mom, if I'm home uh, or, or outside, I'll die anyway if that's meant to happen. Because a lot of people are sitting home and they were dying. So even our parents gave up on us, and uh, yeah, that's that's why uh, we decided, you know, to 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 deal with it and to continue then. And your book Butterfly describes living in around Damascus during the summer of 2015, and and you write about the feeling you just described of getting used to swimming with the sound of mortars falling around the pool. But I believe it was during one particular workout when you were just 17 years old when an unexploded rocket-propelled grenade crashed into the pool while you were swimming. You realized that had the rocket landed anywhere other than the water, it likely would have exploded, killing everyone in the pool. So was that when you felt if you wanted to keep swimming, you needed to leave Syria? Yeah, that was one point because like when this happened, um, so this was one thing, but also before that happened, once there was a, um, there was like a bomb attack in the football field next to us 
And then actually footballers died. And um, and after that, they, they something came on the pool. So the whole glass went down. And we all went down to the safe, like to, uh, I don't know what you call it, storage or something like that. And uh, we stayed there. And then we went to the gym, went down to the like gymnastic hall. And then we stayed there for like almost an hour till my mom came from the outside. And it's kind of like, you have to say it's kind of a 200 meters to go outside of the pool to out to the main door of the stadium. And there was a hotel also. So when we were going outside um, after the whole uh, bombs before, there was like an explosion in the, in the hotel and the whole glass went on me and my sister. Nothing happened to our bodies, but like, can you imagine you're just walking and then something explodes in your face? So after that, like I, my mom heard that, obviously she was outside and then like I couldn't talk. I wasn't, I was okay, but I couldn't talk. And my mom thought there was something happened, that something happened to me. And she was like, are you okay? And I wasn't answering because I was like, what did just happen? And then she was like shouting me at me. She was like, did anything happen to you? And then I was like, no, no, no. And then we wanted to wait for a friend. And then my mom was like, fuck it, I'm just leaving now and then we went with the car and after we crossed the car like to the other side after like five minutes the whole street was bombed so imagine if we waved like that would have been yeah that would have been a disaster so um so after this this was one of the main thing that made me really i want to leave i don't want to have that in my daily life like, people don't even believe it when you tell them that. They think I'm creating an action movie or something. And to be honest, that was our life. And um, so that was one point. The other point was that everyone left of my friends, like teenagers, especially young people, left uh, illegally. And then I was like, what am I, why am I staying here? Like, you know what? I'd rather, you know, try and I'd rather try to build my life again. Better than, you know, staying here. I cannot do anything with my education because it, because it's so hard or it's so expensive. I can't be an international swimmer because, you know, we don't have enough money. Uh, my family didn't, in the end, have enough money, you know, to live, to afford all of that. So lots of points made me realize that I, I want to leave. I want to, you know, have peace again. We didn't have electricity or water sometimes for... 16 hours a day or something yeah so all of those reasons made, made us leave and your 25 day journey from syria to germany involved planes trains buses walking through cornfields while hiding from police and even getting arrested but the part of your journey that has gotten the most attention was the 10k trip in an inflatable boat across the aegean sea from turkey to greece we don't need you to recap the entire journey since it's been pretty well documented <laughs> in other media outlets. But did writing that book give you some peace of mind that you were finally able to set the record straight about the boat story? Because I think some of those media outlets maybe covered it more factually than others. So yeah. did you enjoy having more control over that narrative as you told the story in your words as well? Yeah, I think, first of all, the media always leave my sister out which is like a really, really important part of my life. Uh, we, we were together since we were young. She protected me all the way and she was the first one to jump. So um, I think media always do that. And they chose 
to you know to to make me in the makes make me in the spotlight because of the Olympics afterwards and all of that, which I think it's unfair. Like my sister should always be mentioned because she was part of it. And uh, also the people on the boat also tried as hard as they can. They didn't know how to swim. And um, I think we all play the role. It's not only me. And um, uh, and the whole journey, we were all together. We were all supporting each other. And I wanted to write the book or me and my sister wanted to write the book because we know the story is hard, but we also know that there are people who had way worse story than ours and they can't tell it. And I want to encourage them. I want to, you know, show them that, look, my story maybe is nothing comparison to yours, but I told it to the people and they understood. And they wanted to talk about it. You know, they helped me and all of that. I know people that, can you imagine losing your mom on the way? And I know people who did that. I know people who lost their relatives. Some people's friends were killed in front of them. So to be honest, if I say my story is nothing compared to them, it is nothing compared to them. Last week, I was also in a in a refugee camp in uh, in Jordan, and uh, it's called Zatari. You probably heard of it. And one girl came up to me. She was since seven years in a camp, living in a tent. She came up to me and she told me, "I cannot imagine how hard your story and your life is. I'm sorry for everything you've been through." And when she came to me and told me that, I was like, you know what? I'm not even good enough. I am living in my flat. It's warmed up. I have electricity the whole time. I have my parents. I have a house. And I was like, I still can't do anything for those people except talking about them, except telling people to help them and to understand that this is not a life. They already build a life there in a camp, which is terrible. And... And this is why I realized after writing the book that this is now my message. And I really want to tell the people that they can help with the minimum they have. Seriously, with the minimum. Like now there's, imagine there is in Jordan, which is, I don't know, funny, but it's uh, it's crazy. Now there is snow in Jordan while there are refugees. Imagine. So now there is no snow in Germany, but there's uh, in, in Jordan. And I think, yeah, their life situation is really, really hard. So I always take the chance to tell the people who have power, you know, to help those people. And I tell them more about refugees. And that was the idea of the book. And also there was one last idea of the book is that I am refugee, but I'm still human. And I still have passions and I, have, I, I still have dreams and I can dream. I'm allowed to dream. And also, obviously, the the about the money we said we paid almost ten thousand euros to get to Europe. So I wanted people to know that actually refugees are not poor or they are not educated. They are educated. They have money. They just want peace and new chance in their lives and for their children's, obviously. And and I'll admit that your story was one of my first like firsthand experiences with a refugee. So I'm really happy that you did tell your story. And Thank you. and in that book you do write about the humiliation that you felt at points during your journey, varying from stairs that started as soon as you left Syrian soil to hotels and stores that refused to serve you even though you had the money to pay for their services. 
But you also detail intense kindness from fellow refugees who became like family and strangers offering food and places to sleep and the incredible welcome you received when you finally arrived in Germany. So has that experience, I mean, it sounds like it has, but has that changed how you treat people today? Yep, it changed me a lot. First of all, it made me unmaterial person because I was in Syria and I was just I cared about my look and about my stuff and expensive things more than ever maybe because I didn't have that or I didn't have enough money uh, or like in Syria you have to work your ass off for like I don't know two or three years to get an iPhone because it's so expensive and um, when I got here I was like you know what materials are nothing it matters who you are. And and on the way, I realized that no matter where you go, there are some people who won't like you, who will refuse to help you, who would, you know, push you away, who would tell you you're unsuccessful, you are a refugee, you don't belong here. And there will be people who help you for nothing, who will tell you, you know, I am by your side, even if there is negativity, I want to help. And I, I had actually both situations on the way or here in Germany. Um, even with accepting refugees and not accepting them. So, so to be honest, I think that no matter where you go, uh, there will be people who are uh, nice and friendly and will help you. And there will be people who are negative and do not want you in their country because they're not ready to get educated about you, which is sad. And Yusra, sport can seem very trivial sometimes in the grand scheme of everything else that's going on, but swimming was a big part of why you left Syria, and it helped you survive the crossing to Greece, and once in Germany, it helped you find a community and even housing. So we know that many girls abandon sport as they get older, especially as they reach puberty. Is there anything you can say to those girls or their families to help them realize the benefits of sport that they might not recognize right now? I think I think sport was really, really important in my life. And I realized that actually it built a new community for me. And I had friends really fast in Germany because of that. I learned the language really fast because of that. I wasn't allowed to speak English with them. I had to speak German the whole time, so I learned it. And, um, and also, you know, in Syria, as an example, I'm, I just want to tell those girls that there are some girls in lots of other countries, they are fighting for sport. They are not even allowed to do sport after 18, which is so sad. Like for me, I was always called really bad names for wearing swimming suit for, for she's going to the swimming pool only because of the guys, because blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, he's my brother. I know him since I was five. I was training with him. I don't want anything from him. And people do not didn't understand that that I had actually a goal. They were like, you know, all of you, your kids are home. You have to get married after eighteen. Like you have to 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 do your um, last grade and then go to the college and then stop swimming and then you know stay home and clean and blah blah blah. And I was like, no, that is not my place. And if I am in a country that won't understand that women have rights. I don't care. My family supported me, which was really important. And I just want to tell, tell those girls that sport is important. You don't have to do a sport you don't like, but choose a sport that is, you know, good for you, good for your body. You enjoy it. 
uh, I don't know, maybe not sport, maybe dancing is also a sport, you know, whatever, whatever they feel they want to do and do it because it can really, the, the least sport can do can change your mind. If you're like mad and then go do workout, you let it all out and then you go out like fresh, you forget about it, nothing has happened. This, this happens to me. And it was a very important reason for me to leave everything behind me as example, if I have problems, the war, everything happened in my life. Um, I learned that from my coach, which is was my dad. He told me once you're on the water, everything else doesn't matter. And I still use that till now. And this has helped me a lot in my life. Your initial reaction to the idea of being a member of the refugee Olympic team was actually kind of negative. You didn't always like the term refugee. So how has your relationship with the word changed since then? Um, you know, in the beginning, I was like, this world make like it's humiliating because lots of people, what they have in mind or me also, I had in mind uh, that refugees, you know, they're people who are coming from nowhere, who are not educated because I also didn't know anything about it when I was in Syria. I, I, I just heard like, parents talking about it or blah 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 ah those refugees even syria they do that and whatever whatever i went there like oh refugees i was treated like criminal i was humiliated i i wasn't accepted in lots of countries and uh, and after i got here i i stayed in a camp and i was offered the same food every day i was offered like um i was giving like 130 euros for a whole month and uh and there was a shared bath for everyone like all the women in one one stage like for like three stages of every every in every building or something which uh you was you weren't even safe while you're showering you didn't know if you're safe or not so um all of this made me think that this word is you know uh it is that I was I was ashamed of what what happened to me and I was ashamed that I came that way. But then you know, I when I went to the Olympics and so I saw how many people or how many teenagers look up to me or or to the team or you know, they understood what happened in our lives. I was like, "You know what? I really don't care about what the others say and maybe I should be proud of this world because you know, I am representing in the end millions and millions around the world." And when I walked under the Olympic flag, I was actually representing the world because the Olympic flag, everyone walks under the Olympic flag. And I was like, I was like, you know what, like it or not, this team represented the world. We were different colors, different stories, different countries. We walked as one. We were one team and, you know, we competed as one team. So this was, I think, a really, really strong message to all to the world and I was really proud of it and after that I uh, decided that I want to represent refugees I want to talk more about them and I want to help them so that's why I changed my mind about the world uh, the word refugee and I decided that yes I am refugee and I'm proud of it at the 2016 Olympics in Rio, you swam the 100-meter butterfly and the 100-meter freestyle events. You won your heat in the 100 fly, and the stadium and social media erupted with applause. You were just 18 years old, one year removed from your journey fleeing a civil war. 
Can you tell us about that moment when your hand hit the wall? Did it feel like everything had been worth it? Like, were you even thinking about all of that or were you, you know, able to kind of just think about the swimming, you know, that heat in front of you? Funny story. I wasn't even happy with the time. Oh no. That's like such a swimmer thing though, right? (laughs) Yeah, I was, I was, I was disappointed. I was crying afterwards. I stopped with the media the whole time. I was like, and they were like, ah, are you happy? I was like, um, I don't want to answer that right now. And um, because, you know, I left the whole year and then I, I went back for like six months and then I had to leave again for three months on the way uh, to find a new club in Germany and everything. And then they told me the Olympics is after like eight months you know and i wasn't i wasn't ready i wasn't expecting that i um i trained sometimes three times a day imagine three times swimming training a day and um yeah i i swam okay but but yeah i i was happy and um also again the media made it really really huge they thought i won also a gold medal some people and uh it was yeah it was it was hard to explain afterwards that i did not win a gold medal and uh, yeah but i was proud that lots of people were happy about it i was happy about it um and that refugees were watching as well so it was a really really crazy moment yeah with the crowd also and everything yeah and in those kind of experiences, they're always better in hindsight. You always appreciate them more in hindsight. I think almost yeah. every Olympian I've ever interviewed appreciates it more in hindsight. Yeah. Must yeah. be a it's very, like I've never been to the Olympics, but I can imagine it's very stressful when you're there. So you, you need to get yeah. away and then you're like, wow, that was cool. Yeah. It's, it's so crazy. Like the amount of people, like, I I swam uh, as example of the world championships or in the Olympics. The crowd is so crazy that you swim times you don't imagine you're, you you ever swim in your life. That's how like I think the world champs and so on like uh, uh, have a record and then never swim it again. Some people do that and and the hype is crazy. Like you go into the stadium and they're like, don't look there, don't look, just look at the pool, look at their pool, do not ignore the people. And there you're like, just stay in your zone. Don't look at them. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, Yusra, we appreciate you coming on and talking to us so much. I think, you know, people are really going to learn a lot from your story. Hopefully they will go out and get your book, Butterfly. We will definitely include a link to that book in our show notes. And, And good luck to you on the road to Tokyo. Thank you so much. Thank you for talking to me. The Iron Woman podcast is proud to be supported by Zelio's skincare. Zelio's products are designed and tested by champion triathletes like myself. I know I can count on their high quality and long lasting ingredients to stand the test of the hottest, sweatiest days when I'm racing and training. Have the peace of mind to perform at your best without worrying about your skin and hair products. The products you won't want to train or compete without include Sun Barrier SPF 45, Betwixt All Natural Chamois Cream, swim and sport shower products, and body lotion. You can get 20% off at teamzelios.com by using the code IRONWOMEN. Yep, you heard it right. Get 20% off your Zelios order with the code IRONWOMEN at teamzelios.com.
Earlier this year, our sponsor, Wahoo Fitness, did a huge giveaway here on the podcast. We caught up with Jen Matro, who won the Element Bolt bike computer. Jen, it's been a few months since you won our Wahoo Fitness sweepstakes. How has life been since you became a Wahooligan? Alyssa, is it weird to say that I love my bike computer? The Element Bolt does it all. I can see any metric I need, power, distance, cadence, but I have to say that my absolute favorite feature is how you can enter a destination into the phone app and it will instantly create a route to guide you there with the Bolt. I used that a lot in Nice when I was there for the 70.3 World Championships. Thanks, Jen. We love hearing your feedback. If any of our listeners want to give the bike trainers, bike computers, and heart rate monitors that make up the Wahoo Fitness ecosystem of products a try, head to wahoofitness.com. You might have caught what Yusra said about visiting the refugee camp in Jordan, and that trip happened because she also serves as the youngest ever United Nations Refugee Agency Goodwill Ambassador. So in addition to sharing her own story, Yusra continues to share the story of forcibly displaced people across the world and remind us that they are humans, and just like she said in the interview, they are allowed to dream. It's a really powerful story, Alyssa, and and the International Olympic Committee has announced that there will be a refugee Olympic team at the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, and hopefully that team will include Yusra among many other deserving athletes who are currently unable to represent their home countries but can still compete and represent refugees worldwide. And just as a reminder for this episode, you can write into our mailbag at ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And our Patreon community is patreon.com forward slash live feisty. Bye, Alyssa. Have a great week. Bye, Haley. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, like, and comment on iTunes. My favorite podcast hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. My favorite editor is Aaron Hamilton. The Iron Women podcast is a live feisty media production.